Would you turn with me this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 7? And if you need a Bible, we have several back here on our resource table. Uh, if you don't have one at all, please uh, take one, keep it, and let that be our gift to you today. John 7, we're going to be wrapping up this text this morning. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Church, this is the gospel of the Lord. I want to begin this morning by attempting to correct a common misconception regarding Jesus. And the misconception is that in the accounts of the Gospels, Jesus is simply a passive victim of murder. That he's going about his ministry of love and grace, healing sick people, driving out demons, feeding thousands, generally seeking to unite and bring peace. And yet his growing popularity runs afoul of the chief priests and Pharisees who are threatened by his influence. And so they have him killed. But if you have been with us for any amount of this study of John's gospel, you know that that narrative just doesn't jive with the text. Jesus' ultimate death is not something that happens to him so much as it is a large part of the purpose of his coming along with the resurrection. Is Jesus loving? Well, of course. Does he bring healing and hope to many people? Absolutely. Does his popularity and influence seem to be growing? Yes, it does. Does it bother the chief priests and the Pharisees? Clearly, it does. Is he a victim? Not in the least. In fact, Jesus could never be a victim of anyone or anything because all true victims share one key thing in common, and that is powerlessness. 
To say Jesus is a victim of the schemes of the priests and Pharisees is to imply that he was powerless against them, which he was not. He lays his life down. No one takes it from him. He gives it freely. Quite to the contrary, Jesus holds power. In fact, you could even argue that it's the chief priests and the Pharisees who are really the ones who are powerless against Jesus. Now, the backdrop of this whole scene, as Justin mentioned earlier, is the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. And uh, John has ordered, if you've noticed, he's ordered a lot of these early chapters in his gospel around Hebrew feasts. And this feast in particular is a lesser known one to us Gentile Americans. Um, but it carries a great deal of significance, not only for Jews, um, but also just in the story of Christ in general. Much like Passover, the Feast of Booths calls the attention back to the time of the Exodus when the Israelites escaped slavery in Egypt and they lived in the wilderness of Sinai. And, and so most often if, if people know anything about the Feast of Booths, they know that the Jews would construct these little booths, these little uh, shanties to live in and they would be made out of um, you know, natural material, leaves and branches and those kinds of things. And during this week-long celebration, they would literally move into these booths and it's a reminder of being in the wilderness and not having real shelter, like being out there and relying on the provision of God. Um, not only for shelter, but also for food and for water. Those are also big pieces of this whole thing. In many ways, this is really like a harvest festival. It's, it's coming before the Lord to thank him for his provision. It was also one of three pilgrim feasts in which good Jews would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be a part of the festivities. Uh, the other two are Passover and Pentecost. So for all of chapter 7, Jesus has been present in the midst of this feast, and he has been stirring the pot, so to speak. Starting back in verse 11, we learned that the Jewish leaders were vigilantly watching for him to arrive because his reputation preceded him. So even before the feast began, there were plans in place to arrest him. Now why? Why is that? Well, up to this point in John, it's like every time Jesus has popped up in Jerusalem, he has caused problems for the Jewish leaders. And you kind of can't blame them, right? Jesus comes up in the midst of the temple in chapter 2 at the beginning of Passover, and he makes a whip, and he drives out all of those who were conducting commerce in uh, the court of the Gentiles of the temple, those who were selling animals, those who were exchanging money. Jesus runs them out, and he, in a sense introduced himself publicly in Jerusalem um, by doing that, by, you know, this sort of violent, like, bombastic, you know, like, everybody out of here thing. And we were reminded that zeal for the Lord's house would consume him. Later in chapter 5, Jesus went back to Jerusalem for another unnamed feast, and he healed an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. But not only did he heal someone, but he, he healed someone on the Sabbath. 
And that seems to be even more than the scene in the temple in chapter 2. That seems to be a primary catalyst for the anger of the Jewish leaders here in chapter 7. And I think it's because even though what Jesus did in the temple was annoying... He wasn't necessarily breaking any significant laws that that I'm aware of. He he wasn't disrupting worship. But when he healed a man on the Sabbath, he was guilty in the sight of the Pharisees and the priests of working on the Sabbath. He even brings this up. If you look at verse 19 of chapter 7. And speaking to the people, he says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So we don't know exactly how much time has passed between that healing at the pool of Bethesda and this speech. But clearly Jesus perceives that this is a primary issue. And the people are all over the place regarding what they think of Jesus. Some think he should be arrested. Some think he's Moses who has returned. Some think he has a demon. Some think he's the Messiah. And this brings up a point that we've mentioned before in this study. But man, it is on full display in this chapter. And it's this. Jesus is deeply polarizing. Is he not? And the way that people respond to him is all over the map. And, and, and it's, it's true spiritually that you're either with Jesus or you're against him. But in the minds of the people, it's not black and white at all. It's not just that some are for him and some are against him, which is true in our world today as well. There are those who are opposed to Christ. There are those who are followers or disciples of Christ. There are those who are not believers but who are open to Jesus. There are those who think Jesus represents an admirable moral archetype. There are those who who think today that there was no such person and that it's all myth. I mean, it's just all over the place. In our world. And we see this in Matthew's gospel also when Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And what's the response? This is in Matthew 15, verse 14 and 15. They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So so even right there in those three verses, we get no fewer than five different perspectives on Jesus's identity. But I would argue that Jesus has intentionally created this situation, this tension through his actions, what he does, the miracles he performs, the things he says, it backs people into a corner. He does not make it easy to follow him. In fact, in becoming his disciple, one is more than likely upsetting someone else who thinks something different about the identity of Jesus. And I think that's at the root of Jesus saying that a person's enemies will be those of their own household. But in order to say that he is the Messiah, 
you are inadvertently opposing views that other people hold about him that are contrary. When I say that Jesus is deeply polarizing, what I mean is that he is abundantly controversial. He courts controversy, uh, but he's never controversial simply for the sake of being controversial. In today's world, there are tons of media personalities, right? These are probably already popping into your head. Tons of media personalities, particularly in the political realm, think the podcast world, think talk radio, whose brand is controversy. And often their goal in courting controversy is simply to grow their brand. In other words, they're not really trying to expose some underlying sin or hypocrisy in our culture. No, more often the goal is self-serving, drawing attention to themselves so that the focus can be on them because this is their livelihood, right? This is the way that they make money. It's the way they feed their ego. Jesus, however, has a much more prophetic goal. And, and I mean that in the Old Testament sense of that word, in, in that his controversial actions are meant to expose the sin of the human heart and to call us back to the Father. That's what he's illuminating in the discourse back in verses 19 through 23. You guys don't keep the law of Moses perfectly. Right? You don't follow every jot and tittle. You don't do everything as exactly as you should. But you're mad at me because I made a guy who couldn't walk, walk. He's exposing their underlying hypocrisy. And he does the same thing for us as well. Does he not? More on that in a minute. Next, Jesus doesn't just reveal hypocrisy and sin. He also provides a way out, doesn't he? To this end, Jesus can't be Moses. He can't be Jeremiah. He can't be Elijah. He can't be one of the prophets because even though he is prophetic in exposing sin and declaring the word of the Lord, he does what no prophet before him could do. He doesn't just point to the way out of our state of being. He is the way. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Like a key theme that runs throughout John is that Jesus is exclusively the way to God. And this is perhaps best encapsulated in the famous I am the way and the truth and the life from later in this book. But we see it throughout the whole gospel, including here. And once again, Jesus is very bold to speak up in the midst of everything that's going on. Many commentators point out that a central facet of the Feast of Booths was an elaborate water ritual. This is not something that scripture necessarily tells us about, although you see it in the Talmud. Uh, the feast itself lasted eight days, and it's bookended by Sabbath days, by days of rest on either in the first day or the eighth day. 
So the seventh day is really like the culminating day of all of the activity surrounding the feast. And it's what John calls the great day in this text. And there's a ceremony called Hoshana Rabbah in which the priests would make uh, a procession to the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem and they would draw water. The words Hoshana Rabbah literally mean great salvation. And, and they were reflective of the prophet Isaiah's words in Isaiah 12 verses 2 and 3 when he said, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from wells of salvation. <clears throat> so water would be drawn from the pool. It would be poured out on the altar as an offering. And the people, get this, would pray for salvation. And it's in the middle of this scene, this last great day of the feast, that Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Literally the thing that the people are praying in their ritual is already in their midst. But Jesus doesn't just say this or proclaim this. The translation is, he cried out. He cried out. The Greek there is actually an onomatopoeia. How many of y'all remember your elementary school grammar? It, it's a word that sounds like the thing that it's representing. It's like sizzle or buzz or something like that. And, and it literally, in the Greek, is meant to uh, represent the call of a raven. It's like us saying that birds say caca, right? That's, that's underlying all of this. Um, but literally, in this context, the word means to scream. So Jesus stands up, I mean, knowing that there are people who want to arrest him and kill him. It's like Jesus stands up in the middle of this and declares these words in such a way that you have to, like, turn and go, what's happening? What's going on? He screams it. He stands up in the midst on this last great day and screams, your salvation is already here. Come to me and drink, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Interestingly, Mark's gospel uses the exact same word for the crowds who before Pontius Pilate screamed, crucify him. So Jesus is standing up in the midst of the people screaming, your salvation is here. And later the people stand up and scream, put him to death. What an apt picture. The lone voice of Christ screaming that he is salvation alone over the ceremony in which people are praying and looking for salvation. I mean, it's just dripping with irony. And the problem with his call is that I cannot find my salvation in him and also continue to look for it in the things of this world. Don't miss that. 
and if in my heart what I really believe is that salvation is to be found in the things of this world, then Jesus is opposed to me. He is a threat. Now, one, one quick note. John gives us an explanation of Jesus' words here. Do you notice this? Verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's really helpful, actually. It may have just, you may have blown by that, but it's helpful because later in John, Jesus does this very strange thing that some people interpret as being an error or a contradiction in Scripture. It's in John 20, verses 21 and 22. It's after the resurrection. Jesus appears to his apostles, and he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is odd because Luke tells us in Acts that the disciples received the Holy Spirit at another feast in Jerusalem, Pentecost. But here Jesus says in John 20, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So, so some people think that John is saying, no, 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 that didn't happen at Pentecost. Jesus had already given them the Spirit. In other words, that this is some kind of discrepancy in the text. But that's why John's words here are so helpful um, it shows us that John's view was that the apostles did not receive the Spirit in the way that we think about that in that moment in John 20, but that it didn't happen until after Jesus was glorified, meaning after Jesus had ascended. And what happens in John 20 is more like a proclamation of what is to come or a pronouncement of what is to happen. It's like when a new president gets voted into office, right? There's a point where it's official. He's going to be the president. He becomes the president-elect, but he hasn't been installed yet, right? He hasn't been inaugurated yet. And so it's like there is this pronouncement that happens in John 20, and then at Pentecost, the inauguration happens. The Spirit comes and indwells the lives of followers of Christ. Here's what I want to press on in closing. If following Jesus has never created any kind of tension or struggle or challenge or conflict in your life. I'm not sure you're really following Jesus. If it's never presented you with any kind of pushback, without any kind of hurdle, without any relationship that becomes sideways because you're seeking to follow Christ, are you really following Jesus? That's not to say that we should seek after conflict or hardship. But it is to say that if we're seeking to follow Jesus with our lives, we cannot shy away from it. And, and the most important conflict that we can't shy away from is not conflict or tension with other people. It's the conflict or tension we feel inside of ourselves. 
Because if Jesus is the living water, then that means nothing else is. It's an exclusive claim. That means the things you want to run to for comfort or to find your value in or to feel successful or to feel safe or important cannot truly save you. And that no matter what those things give to us, they will always leave us longing for more or different or better. In the words of St. Augustine, our hearts are restless, right? Until they find their rest in you, God. But our flesh wars against that rest, and the Spirit of God wars against the flesh. So if there is no tension within you, if there is no disgust for your own sin, if there's no challenge in listening to the Spirit, if there's no temptation to not be obedient to the things you know you should do, are you really seeking to follow Jesus in your life? How many times have you felt a tug to do something or to say something or to give something and ultimately decided that it was just more than you were comfortable with? I really believe that following Christ is an exercise in embracing what's called liminality. It's about stepping into liminal space, which is what we would call being outside of our comfort zone. And let's be honest, for many of us, all of our effort, our energy, our focus goes into never being outside of our comfort zone. Always being like safely ensconced within the boundaries of what I deem to be comfortable to me. And yet it's impossible to read the account of the Gospels and not come away with some kind of a sense that the call of Christ is outside of that realm. It is to step out of whatever that space is for us. It is to risk awkwardness. It is to risk embarrassment. It is to risk being alienated in relationships or ostracized from social groups. If you read the Gospels and come away with a notion that none of those things would ever happen, you've missed a huge chunk of it. Jesus told his disciples, it's like I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And if people hated me, you better believe they're going to hate you. For many of us, our lives revolve around remaining comfortable. And yet Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is that scary? Yeah, it is. And is Jesus being hyperbolic on some level there? I, I think so. That's not outside of his teaching. But there's a big component here that is the component of the unknown. And here's the challenge, I think, to you and me. The challenge is to be willing to follow Christ, to be willing to be led by the Spirit up to the boundary of our comfort zone, and then to take one more step. To not become experts in getting to that point and going, eh, let me walk this back. 
but to so believe that he is the source of living water, that we come to rest in that, so that when we do get to that boundary, because our hope is in Christ, because our rest is in Christ, we are able to go one more step. And what I found in my own life, while I certainly don't do this perfectly, is that what was the boundary at one point is no longer the boundary anymore. That the goal line, as it were, keeps getting moved. And, and what was uncomfortable to me at one point is not anymore. Which is growth and maturity and sanctification. And that's what he's doing through the Spirit in all of us, church. He says, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You can't see if you don't taste. Let me leave you today with these words from the same chapter of Matthew. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And why are we not to fear? Because Jesus is no victim of anything. Jesus holds complete power. As he says to his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let us rest in that and let us live out of that rest. Let us pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the truth of your Holy Scripture this morning. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Made so clear in the person and work of Christ. And may we not be like the crowds that surrounded him who believed any number of things about his identity, many of whom were completely missing the point. They were missing key pieces of information about him, about where he had really come from and who he really was. May it not be so with us. May we be true learners, true disciples of Christ who are seeking not just to study the Bible, but are seeking to imbibe the example of Jesus so that we might become more and more like him as his people. We love you, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?